What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for two ninety nine subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold-cut combo. Veggie delight. Or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just two ninety nine each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied. Welcome to Ideation Collective. We're back with part two of our interview with Steve Pearson. Could we, you know, do our own solution for, you know, this problem we're facing? Yeah, but it's probably going to be, you know, cheaper and a lot less headache to trust that, uh, you know, someone else who's an expert at it has already done a great job of it and, and to work with them. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, we want to invite you to get involved in the charity our founders helped start called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the U.S. and globally. The top project you could help with now is in Cusco, Peru. There are 20 girls that the local government rescued but didn't have anywhere to keep them safe, so they put them in jail. The government has said that they're willing to give custody of these kids to the aftercare facility we're helping to expand now once we raise enough money and build an extra building there. To learn more, please click on the Child Rescue tab on our website, which is iCollective.co. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Steve, uh, we were just talking about valuations and choosing when to take money and, and you know having almost the patience to really question ourselves on should we do this now? Is this the right type of money? Is this a risk profile I want? Um, but when you're making decisions about what mountain to climb, how, how, do you, uh, how do you do that? How do you decide, are we ready for this? Or do we need to take a step back and train more before we go? How does that work? Uh, you know, the mountaineering community is uh, a, a great group of people for the most part. Uh, you know, th- there are some sports I've participated in that are uh, you know, very competitive between people. Um, mountaineering, uh, not so much in my experience. You know, the, the other folks on the mountain are fantastic and, and people are, are very excited and, and willing to help each other. And, uh, you know, as, as, as my climbing partners and I have, have looked at uh, different mountains to climb, uh, you know, hands down, the, the top source of information for us is, is other mountaineers. Uh, you know, I've had a lot of conversations, you know, over dinner somewhere with, with people on, you know, well, when, when did you do this? And, and what did you think of that climb? And, you know, here's the other climbs I've done. You know, what else do you think I should do to prepare for that? Um, and, and people are very generous in, in sharing their stories and experiences and, and offering advice. Uh, you know, before uh, my climbing partner, Dave, and I went to Mount Everest, we did uh, phone or, or in-person uh, meetings and interviews with, with maybe eight other people who had been to the summit in the previous few years that we found through, through, a, you know, a handful of connections and, um, without exception, they, you know, very generously, um, shared their time and experience, what they wish they had done differently, you know, what their favorite part of the climb was, uh, um, and, and, you know, their, their frank assessment of, of what, you know, they thought of our preparation up to that point and, and so on. But, uh, you know, wh- whether in business or mountains, I, I think, uh, there's a, a social element that perhaps uh, um, in, in our fast-paced world uh, and, and uh, you know, so much available information online that that, that person-to-person uh, communication perhaps sometimes gets, gets shortchanged. 
No, I'm so glad you brought that up. I think so often um, the people that get ahead quickly when they're getting into maybe a newer industry is the ones who invest in those social relationships. Like read the tra- trade magazines, read the newspaper articles, you know, read read the business news. But going to the conference and sitting at lunch with somebody and learning what all those acronyms mean, like being able to speak the language, it seems like such an accelerator that almost can't quite be uh, received in any other way than person to person. Do you find that or do you see it different? I, I think you're right. Some of it might be able to be received you know, other ways, but I think the recipient has to be you know, a very special type of personality in that sense as well. And then all you're getting is information without the relationship. But the relationship, particularly in business, can, can go a long way too because it, it continues to evolve and it will continue to uh, you know, provide benefits perhaps. You, know, you, you mentioned reading all those different materials. You might read all those materials and gain all that knowledge, but then why not reach out to uh, you know, whoever the journalist or writer is of those articles on LinkedIn and say, you know, love your article. I'm really interested in getting into this industry. Um, you know, will you be at this conference? I'd love to get to meet you or say hi. Or, you know, would you be willing to, um, you know, take 10 minutes and answer a couple questions I have about your article? And, you know, a lot of people will ignore that request. But I think you'd be surprised how many people would, would take that. And, and now you have an ally. And you never know over the next few years you know, if that journalist or, or you know, speaker you heard at that conference or, or whoever it may be, uh, you know, will think of you and, and will be forwarding interesting ideas or connections or contacts your way. I'm such a fan of that. I, I think one of the things that, that I've kind of doubled down on because it's worked so well is um, trying to buy somebody else lunch when you're clear with them. I'm not looking for a handout. I'm not looking for a job. I'm not looking for money. I just think I want to be more like you. Is there any way I could buy you lunch and get your advice of what you'd do if you were me? There's like this, there's this like flattering aspect of people want to, people want to learn what you know. And a lot of times people spend a ton of time and effort learning that skill set. But, you know, their spouse doesn't care. Their kids don't care. <laughs> not, there's not always a lot of people that care that they've worked so hard to acquire that skill set. And there are a lot of generous people that just for asking have certainly benefited me, I know, at least. Yeah, well, you know, I, I look at what your organization does with, with uh, rescuing children, and, you know, I imagine uh, a lot of your listeners have have um, done and continue to do amazing things to, to help other people and, and have found, uh, you know, something to fill that part in their lives. But there's a huge number of people in the world who spend a lot of time wanting to help other people, but not really knowing how or where um, and, you know, at the end of the day, we all want to feel like we're good people, right? I mean, everybody wants to feel like they've helped someone else and, and left their mark for better. Um, but amid, you know, the busyness of, of our world and, and other pressures, it can actually be tough to, to do. And I think when somebody else reaches out to you and says, you have some knowledge or something that would be really helpful to me, and at a pretty low cost to yourself, you could make my life better. Um, you know, people are pretty happy to do that. They, they love to feel like they've been helpful, uh, you know, at the cost of going to lunch to someone. You know, they're probably not thinking of it in, in that kind of cost-benefit analysis at all. But, you know, I, I, you know, I, I regularly uh, serve as a, a mentor to BYU students in the economics program as, as an alumnus of, of that group. And, 
um, you know, that, that's a very small thing to do. Um, and, you know, I don't know how helpful I've actually been to some of these students, but, you know, it, paradoxically, I, I do it kind of selfishly, right? I, I enjoy doing it. it. It's fun for me. I, I enjoy feeling like I've, you know, at least tried to, to help some of these students with, you know, some of the career and, and coursework decisions they're making and, and sharing my experience. And you know, I think most human beings are like that. You know, I, I love that you brought that up. I feel like we should be writing a book called uh, Generosity as a Competitive Advantage. But um, <laughs> I, I will say, like, I look at child rescue and, like, sometimes people come up to us and they're like, oh, that's such great work you do. And they, and then it's kind of gets into, like, um, maybe, like, I don't know how to say this nice, like a little bit of um, they make a real big deal out of the work we've done there. And sometimes I think to myself, like, well, I appreciate it, but, like, you don't understand. It's really fun. Like, sure, the 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 low parts working on an issue like child trafficking means you, you do some crying, right? Try not to let your tough guy friends see you. But the highs are so high. Like, it's more fun than snowboarding. Nobody comes up to me and is like, "Just that's so great that you went snowboarding on Saturday." Like, I just think it's wonderful that you've gone. You, go, you made the time to go snowboarding. And I'm like, listen, child <laughs> rescue is more fun than that. Like, when you literally change somebody's life for good, that's a high that lasts a long time. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, maybe sounds a little funny to talk about, uh, you know, doing service for how it makes, you know, you, you feel, but, but that's very real. And, and I think, uh, you know, we probably do a disservice to, uh, you know, charitable efforts and philanthropy and, and things like that to, to ignore that and, you know, try to pretend as if, uh, you know, we're all mother Teresa and, and willing to, to do things just out of the goodness of our own hearts. You know, I hope I get there someday, but, but in the meantime, if, you know, if we can harness that, uh, all the better. <laughs> well, um, listen, I want to talk about your strategy now at Friendemic and, and the influences on it. So um, you talked to me, we were talking about really where you guys maybe shine a bit more when it comes to the one-to-many of. One individual is handling social media accounts for, for, for many brands like an auto mall where maybe... That, that one individual has got to handle the Volkswagen Facebook page and the Hyundai and the Mercedes and the whatever, right? Um, and you guys are doing everything from managing ads, posting the social, fan engagement, responding to reviews. Um, how did your time, say, um, do, at the Google, when you were doing your internship at Google, working on the channel sales, how does those type of experiences influence how you make these friendemic decisions? Uh, so at, at Google, uh, I, I did my MBA internship there. So I was there for just a couple of months and, and you know, fantastic company. Uh, but uh, I think what was most interesting for me was that I, I was in a very um, unusual business unit at Google. And, you know, in some ways, we were kind of the, the redheaded stepchild within Google. Um, I was in the channel sales division, uh, which was the group within Google that worked with our reseller partners. And uh, uh, when I was there, it was a very new division. It hadn't existed uh, for most of Google's history. Um, you know, the, the founders and several others at, at Google have, had long been believers that you know, there's really no reason that you know, every business, you know, no matter how big or small you are, can't just go create your own AdWords account. And we should make you know, the Google product and, and advertising so straightforward and simple that everyone ought to just be able to do it themselves. And so you know, why would we ever let... Uh, you know, agencies or, or other technology companies, you know, kind of bundle AdWords together with what they're doing and, and charge a premium and, and be a reseller. Um, you know, we, sh you know, as Google, we should be cutting the middlemen out. 
Well, it turns out, uh, you know, there's a lot of business owners who are, are just never going to make their own AdWords account. And, and so, you know, when Google finally, uh, you know, caved on that and, and created this business unit, it, it grew tremendously quickly. But you can imagine there was some, you know, conflict, uh, um, you know, cordial, of course, uh, between, you know, existing business units at Google that felt maybe the channel sales group was cannibalizing their business or at a minimum, you know, kind of going against, you know, the, the ethos they had been preaching for a long time. Um, uh, so it was a fun place to work, you know, re- growing very, that business unit was growing really quickly and, and, you know, developing capabilities that, uh, you know, prior to that Google, uh, you know, hadn't, hadn't really had. Um, it, it definitely influenced me, uh, in, in my thinking about Friendemic, um, and going to a small company like Friendemic as well, uh, you know, you, you can't do everything yourself. And, you know, I think as entrepreneurs, we, we probably fall uh, victim to that mentality that, uh, you know, we can do this better um, for just about anything. You know, we're always thinking about, well, gosh, wouldn't this be so much more efficient if, you know, X, Y, Z, and, you know, what if I built that this way? And, you know, why would I pay someone for that when I could do it myself? And, and it's really easy to find yourself in a world where, you just want to try to do everything. And, and I think my Google experience showed me that, you know, yeah, e- even, even some of the best companies in the world like Google, could they do that themselves? You know, maybe, but you, you leave more on the table than, than otherwise when, when you choose not to work with people who you know, already have figured it out and already have that expertise. You know, at Friendemic, could we figure, could we, you know, do our own solution for, you know, this problem we're facing? Yeah, but it's probably going to be, uh, you know, cheaper and a lot less headache to trust that, uh, you know, someone else who's an expert at it has already done a great job of it and, and to work with them. And kind of picking those battles, I, I think, is is important and, and takes a, do- a lot of discipline because it is so tempting, especially as an entrepreneur and especially if you're bootstrapping, uh, you know, a- every penny is just, you know, why would I pay someone else for that? But, you know, really that's often often the right choice. Well, and especially with you know, both the tech side and the services side. I remember when you were talking about churn. Um, how, how do you approach things at Friendemic to try and keep churn down? Do you have a specific strategy? Uh, we have a number of initiatives we, we try to uh, emphasize. Um, and, and uh, you know, of course, it comes down to having a, a great product and service that delivers, you know, provable value and having sold it correctly. Uh, you know, setting the right expectations is, is super important. And then communicating what you've done properly is, is also very important. You know, I, unfortunately, I've seen clients quit that we were doing fantastic work for, you know, some of the best work we've ever done. But for whatever reason, the client didn't see it or we weren't able to communicate it properly. Um, when, when I worked at McKinsey, I, I was in uh, uh, an informal practice group there called uh, the customer experience practice, which um, you know, back then was, was a pretty new thing. It's really caught on now. Um, but uh, the partner I worked very closely with said something that, that has influenced me my whole career. I've, I've always thought it was so interesting. We, we would do a lot of uh, projects with call centers um, and, and where, you know, you're dealing with a, a lot of unhappy customers often and, and working on, on churn reduction. And he said that, uh, you know, customer satisfaction is the difference between expectations and perception, reality has nothing to do with it. And, <laughs> and that's kind of a hard concept to get your mind around often, but it's so true. Um, you know, what you expect sets the tone so much for how you're going to be happy about it and, and how you perceive it is, is of course, you know, more and more, more important than the reality. 
So some, you know, some fun examples of that, you know, I mentioned we were working in call centers. Um, you know, it's amazing how different uh, a rating will be from a customer who's you know, been on hold to speak to a customer representative. If your recording hold music says what the expected wait time is. You know, they, they're still waiting exactly the same amount of time. You're not changing how long they're waiting at all. But there's a marked improvement in how satisfied they were with their overall experience just by saying, you know, periodically how much longer the wait's going to be. You know, setting that expectation goes a huge way. Um, you know, similarly, if your hold music is, uh, you know, high energy advertising, quick, quick speaking, trying to sell you more stuff versus, you know, pleasant, calm hold music, again, you're still waiting the same amount of time but your perception of how long you're waiting changes and customer satisfaction goes up. Again, no, nothing to really do with the reality of, of the wait time, but all in that expectation and perception. And so, you know, we, we make sure our, our sales team here at Friendemic is, is coordinating very closely with our fulfillment team to make sure that, you know, they're not over-promising that when, you know, a, a new client comes in and transitions to fulfillment that, uh, you know, all those expectations are, are properly communicated and then we, we do work very hard on our reporting engine to make sure that uh, your clients are very clear with, uh, uh, you know, what we're delivering and, and, and the value of it, um, because it, it, it's unfortunate, uh, you know, in, in many businesses I've worked in, how often people do a ton of work that uh, you know, doesn't even get noticed or, or isn't, isn't uh, you know, perceived. You know, I'm, I'm interested. Uh, McKinsey, you know, such a big name company, you know, triple the revenue of their next, you know, second competitor, Right. Um, when you think about traveling around the world and working with these big giant companies, um, what's your big takeaway? Like if you were, if you were going to sum it up or you're going to pick one of the, one of the top things that you feel like that time changed your perspective of the way you look at business or the way you look at growing a company, is there anything that stands out to you as like, I really feel like this is what I learned at McKinsey? Uh, yeah, this one is probably, uh, the, the biggest thing that came away for me is, is perhaps somewhat uh, a personal learning, but maybe some others would, would benefit from it as well. And that was just the size of company I wanted to work at. Uh, and, and that definitely changed my career. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of talk about there about what industry you want to work in or, or what function you want to work in. Uh, you know, I really want to work in automotive and, you know, I want to work in marketing. Um, but I don't hear a lot of people talk about, you know, I really want to work for a big company or a small company. But I would argue, you know, that that your career and and how that how your professional life experience goes is probably determined more by size of company than perhaps even either of those other two factors. But you know, I don't remember, uh, you know, speakers or, or workshops during my undergraduate or in you know career development where people talked about that that difference. Uh, you know, I had a I had a fantastic experience at McKinsey. Learned a ton. Worked with some amazing, fantastic people. Um, but, you know, if there's one thing to take away, like you asked, I think it was that, you know, I, I learned quickly that I, I don't want to work at a Fortune 500 or Fortune 1000 company. Uh, they're fantastic organizations and there's lots of great reasons to work at them. But, you know, what I, I got, what I discovered I was passionate about was you know, working on strategy problems and being able to watch them bear fruit. Uh, and, you know, large companies like this are, are often... Uh, they're, they're so big, they've got so much inertia, it can take a long time to, to really, uh, you know, adjust to changing conditions. Um, it takes a long time even to, you know, put a plan in place because you need 
and, and it's critical. You need to get buy-in from so many different parties. Um, and it, it's a very different feel than, than working at a small company. And so, you know, from McKinsey, I went to Vector Capital, where again, I was, uh, you know, went, went down market, uh, you know, working with kind of mid-sized companies. And, and then, uh, you know, after that, uh, after business school, here I am at, at Friendemic, a, you know, a very small company. We're about 70 employees. Um, and, and, you know, up from 17 when I joined. So we're, we're definitely growing, but, uh, you know, a long way from, from uh, those kind of massive companies. But, but I, I love the feeling of working at a business where, um, you know, everyone has input and uh, can, can, you know, to some extent, um, you know, weigh in on, on issues. You know, I, I know the name of everyone at the company. And, you know, while we are starting to have, you know, specialization and, and people working in different functions for sure, um, there's still so many needs across the company that, if, you know, if somebody in a different area or department wants to help with something, you know, they can. And, and I like that fluidity and, and that, that feeling of, of, of working at a small company. But, but I think that's something that, uh, you know, people in school and, and figuring out their career just, uh, you know, unfortunately don't, don't plan ahead for and don't think about as much. You know, I'm thinking about a number of these stories and a number of the principles that you've brought up. Um, and even about you telling me the story of, you know, you're your becoming the CEO at Friendemic and the founder deciding that he wanted to spend more time on like the initial launch of things and that, you know, this is your friend from your first business back at Seedability and it is those relationships that years later you're getting more involved in. It's interesting to see kind of these principles lived out for you. Yeah, and, you know, I can only say great things about Jason Barber, uh, my, the, the founder here at Friendemic that, that you're referencing. Um, someday perhaps you ought to have a podcast with him, but... Uh, he he was uh, criticized by many people when when he brought me in as as CEO. Uh, you know, here he, he was the CEO before me. He was the founder. You know, obviously a very intelligent, uh, smart, hardworking guy. And you know, a lot of people pulled him aside. You know, he's shared with me in the years since and and said, you know, why on earth would you bring someone else in? You know, I think you're making a big mistake. And you know, I can really uh, um, admire him and and credit him for for being so self aware. You know, I think a lot of people struggle with that, but he, he was able to acknowledge that you know, these are the things about my job that I really like, and these are the things that I don't. And you know, I'm willing to give up the you know, prestigious CEO title, if you will, uh, if it means that I get to focus on you know, the parts of the business that I enjoy and, and, and the part of my career that uh, you know, I uh, you know, want to, to dedicate my time to. It's pretty rare. But isn't it such a value, not only to those around you, but to yourself to to bring that level of self-awareness? You know, you think there's so much in Western society, especially um, and, and um, the kind of look at me culture that the media has has continued to perpetuate that um, it's almost like we need to gather this external status so we could hold it this like cardboard cutout version of ourselves that everyone will think is great versus really having that level of introspection of what we're looking for, you know. I think about even a pretty basic business book like The E-Myth, right? And he talks about dividing the technician role, the manager role, and the entrepreneur role. And so many people feel like they have to do it all, and they have to do it all at the highest level, and they all have to do it all with the most people and the most venture backing and this, 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 without actually questioning what they really feel like is the right fit for them as an individual. And yet you look at like a Michael Jordan who doesn't make much money playing baseball, right? So yeah, like what a value it is to figure out what your basketball is and then double down on that, regardless of how everyone else thinks you should be living your life. Right. 
Absolutely. Well, um, listen, wrapping up here, let's talk about, um, let's talk about books. What books do you think, uh, any entrepreneurs or innovators should be reading these days? Uh, you know, they're, they're classics, but I love the, the Jim Collins books, um, and, you know, focusing on people and, and really looking at, at successful companies over the years. Uh, I think they've, they've had a, uh, definitely had an impact on me. Uh, you know, another one that's not often thought of is, is a business book, but I, I really loved is, uh, the paradox of choice, um, by Barry Schwartz. It's, it's, it's really mm. more of a psychology book. Um, but, uh, I, I, I majored in economics at, at BYU and, you know, classical economic theory would say that, you know, more choices can only make you better. Um, and, uh, paradox of choice says, you know, that that's completely wrong. You know, at some point too many choices can, can be overwhelming and actually make you unhappier and make your decisions much more difficult. And, uh, you know, I think for, for many entrepreneurs, uh, you know, we love that the world is our oyster and, and you can go in, in any direction, but we also have a really hard time, um, closing doors. You know, we always want to preserve optionality, at least for me, it's really hard to say, you know what, that's a great path, but you know, I have to move on from it and, and who knows what would have happened, but I'm just going to leave that aside. And you know, that book really helped me realize that sometimes that was the right thing to do that, you know, focus, you know, limiting your, your, um, your options to, you know, two, three, four different decisions instead of 20, uh, you know, is, is definitely going to make your life uh, simpler and, and happier. <laughs> That's great. Um, standard question. We'd love to get people's different opinions on um, child rescue. We brought it up briefly, trying to prevent child sex trafficking or rescue the kids that are in it. Uh, what advice would you have for us of getting more people involved in that issue? Uh, when you work at a social media marketing company, I, I suppose, uh, um, you know, everything comes back to social media. So I'd sorry be, I'd be disappointed the, if you didn't. <laughs> sorry if this is the hammer and nail uh, situation here. But, I, I, you know, I think this is a, a, an issue. You know, I certainly don't know much about it myself and, and uh, you know, applaud the efforts of, of those who do. Um, but virtually the entire world, I have to think, believes that this is a horrible, horrible thing. I mean, it's a tiny minority of humanity that I, I think that, you know, is involved in, in promoting this and, and, and consuming it. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I think most anyone who hears about it will support and wants to support. They probably just don't know how. And so I think what you really face is, is just an awareness, uh, issue. And, you know, we live in a, a time in history that is just unprecedented in terms of the ability to educate people about, uh, you know, any issue out there at, at a very, very low cost. And so, uh, you know, I'd really encourage, uh, you know, you and, and your existing supporters and, and those who work with you to, uh, you know, talk about it on, on your social media channels, you know, more than you are. Uh, you can really reach a ton of people out there and try to be very specific with, with what you would want from them. You know, people want to support and help you. They probably just don't know what they can do to help. And, uh, you know, if, if you arm them with that, I, I think you'll find that uh, they'll want to help and, and, uh, you know, that would help further your organization. That's great. Uh, I really appreciate that. I think, I think you're right. I think it's easy for us to post something, hope people like it or something, but, uh, I'm not sure we have enough specific calls to action that are, that are reasonable, that are th things people can and want to do. And that's probably something we need to have a harder look at. Um, 
Well, I think that's a I think that's a great place to end off today. We really appreciate how much time you spent with us and uh, and the insights from your experience. Thanks, Jess. Uh, great to hear about some of the work you're doing, and appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. Great. And that was part two of our interview. If you missed part one, please go back an episode and download the episode before this one for the first half of the interview. As always, please check iCollective.co for show notes of things referenced during the interview and to learn more about our guest. And if you're interested, we'd love to have you learn more about the charity Child Rescue. Go to the menu page on iCollective and click on Child Rescue. Thanks so much. Five-Hour Tea with caffeine from Green Tea Leaves. It's delicious, energizing, and comes in three amazing flavors. With zero sugar and four calories, it fits your life. With its compact size and portability, it goes where you go. To the campsite, the hiking trail, the beach, without weighing you down. Five-Hour Tea. Caffeine from Green Tea Leaves. Release your natural side from the makers of Five-Hour Energy. For more information, visit 5hourenergy.com. Try Five-Hour Tea today. Look for Five-Hour Tea at your local Circle K store.